Hi, I'm Carrie, your friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we are skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. This season, we are exploring what it means to stay well and find healing after experiencing religious harm. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health support with a licensed professional. If you want to be part of the conversation, please follow the show on Instagram at your friends, the therapist pod, or send me an email at carrie at carriefillion.com. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, my guest today is Michelle Mosley. Michelle is a licensed mental health counselor in North Carolina. She believes that all people deserve respect, compassion, and access to mental and physical health care. Michelle specializes in working with survivors of religious trauma and spiritual abuse and those who are exiting a high-control religion. She also works with folks around body image concerns, anxiety, grief, and life transitions. In addition to her clinical work, Michelle provides education about mental health for faith leaders and enjoys exploring all that North Carolina has to offer in her free time. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come and chat with you. Yeah, I'm really, given your um, areas of specialty, your experience, I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, So I would love to start with just hearing a little bit about your own relationship to high control religion and any experiences you might have had growing up, or maybe you don't have any personal experience. Just what what's the background that brings you into this high control religious healing space? I find that often folks that end up in this space do have a personal background. That is is the case for me. Um, Mine was not so much when I was a child. There are some aspects of it there um, as far as being told what was appropriate to wear, um, you know, as a little girl that, you know, you need to wear skirts or dresses to church activities Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, And also some pretty authoritarian tendencies in parenting, not necessarily take any in like developmental stages and what's appropriate. Um, But the, I guess the really crux of my um, experience in high control religion was more in young adulthood. Mm -hmm. Um, As I um, was in churches, you know, in college, a lot of them had very strict gender roles about what was expected and what was allowed for men and women. Um, and that continued. I actually worked in vocational ministry for about 10 years. Um, and it seemed like the control just kept getting stronger and stronger throughout the 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, my last three to four years in ministry, uh, I had a, a leader of our, our ministry team who was very high control, very um, stuck with patriarchal roles, um, very, if folks are familiar with the term complementarianism, mm-hmm. that that he was very much, this is a man's role, this is a woman's role, this is how I protect my marriage, which mm-hmm. includes not talking to other women at all, even about work. Um, so that was 
that was really the hardest part of my experience with high control, but I can see how that thread played out throughout my life. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. I, I find that for folks I've talked to that young adulthood time can be a time that's really, um, well, it's a really formative time. Like we know that from developmental psychology, Mm -hmm. right. And it's a time that a lot of folks, even if they didn't have prior super high control religious experience, get kind of pulled in, in those ways. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like that was the case for you. And for me, like at that time, it, it very much felt like this is a call and this Mm. is something beyond just, I want to be in ministry. Mm. And so some of the messages around suffering for God um, or that this is not supposed to be easy played into that as well. Yeah. And so were you in North Carolina this whole time? Did you grow up there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I did. Um, I grew up here. I I am born and bred North Carolina. And would North Carolina be considered Bible Belt? Yes, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Um, in my experience, a lot of folks in North Carolina are Southern Baptists or were Southern Baptists um, during my childhood and young adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely Bible Belt. Yeah, because I'm just thinking as you spoke, so I'm in Massachusetts, I grew up in Vermont, so like very different culturally. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm thinking, like you said that your high control experience was more kind of in your young adulthood, but there were elements of it that were woven throughout your childhood. And I'm wondering how much of that is sort of culturally based on where you grew up. Yeah, I have had a really hard time kind of teasing apart, like what part of things, particularly around like what's expected of a child, Mm. what part of that was cultural and what part of that had to do with religion. Mm. Um, And so I'll often, like if I'm talking about my experience, I'll be like this Christian Southern experience because it it is so interwoven. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious um, what the value, if any, for you has been in sort of teasing that apart between I know I'm already off script but like I just have so many questions and I will bring us back to what we agreed to talk about but yeah like how did you what what has the benefit been of teasing that apart like is this cultural or is this religion or combination yeah for me personally I think it's just been helpful because I'm the type of person that wants to understand like what the root of something is um so that has been helpful Um, I think it can also be helpful in my work because not everybody I work with comes from a Southern background. Mm -hmm. Um, And so having some awareness that like, okay, some of my experience was more heavily influenced by geography and like Mm -hmm. expectations of being in the South in the Bible Belt, Mm -hmm. maybe not necessarily religion, whereas Mm -hmm. somebody who may have been in another part of the country or the world they didn't have those Southern expectations, but there may have been other expectations based on where they were located. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I totally resonate with that. that um, like child rearing, at least as far as I understand where I grew up, if you're in high control religion and if you're not, they look mm-hmm. very, very different because Vermont is a very overall a pretty liberal state um pretty progressive but if you're in like a little pocket it's very different yeah um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of power in understanding these things like that mm-hmm. in and of itself can be healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what sort of made you lean even further into religion in your young adulthood. Um, for me, it was definitely that I felt that I had a calling. Um, I really felt strongly um, that God was leading me toward working in some way to serve people um, and to share his message. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that time, that was that was really the driving force behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have found that a lot of folks that have experienced religious trauma have really felt the impact of high control religions, that there is that common theme of being very committed and being very pulled toward serving in some way, whether that was vocational ministry or not, of this is not just something I show up to once a week. Like this is a huge part of my life and I am dedicated and committed to it. Yes. Yes. I see that so much that those of us who feel like we were really impacted were the ones who were so deeply mm-hmm. in it, like really committed to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cause if, mm-hmm. if it is something that you show up once a week, if you decide, Hmm, this is not for me, then you just stop showing up once a week. Right. Um, right. And it's not as likely to have such an impact on you yeah. as when it, it was a huge part of your life or maybe is still a huge part of your life. Yes. Yeah. So I'm curious where, where in your kind of like timeline and your story, you transitioned to mental health counseling. So, um, it was around 2009 to 2013 was the hardest part of my time in mm-hmm. ministry. It was when I, I didn't have the words at the time, but I really was experiencing a lot of spiritual abuse um, by a high control leader. Um, and in 2013, I just realized like, I can't, there was a few things that happened that I was like, there is just not integrity within this ministry. I can't be here anymore. Um, and I chose to leave. Um, but it was a really painful leaving. Um, and, um, I had previously been interested in pursuing mental health work, um, but I just never had, I'd never done that. I felt more strongly pulled toward ministry. Um, and so that was when I was like, you know, maybe this is a sign that I should go back to grad school and get a degree in counseling and, and, you know, help and support people in that way. Um, and so 2014 is when I went back um, to graduate school. I was in my mid thirties. Um, and I didn't necessarily plan to specialize in religious trauma, um, or body image concerns, um, especially the religious trauma piece. I was still very early in my own work trying to, to pull that apart and heal from that. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, that's where I have ended up now. I kind of, I refer to it as the niche that found me. Yes. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit about how this found you. How did you come to this place where you wanted to make this your work? So I was, um, working in a group practice 
And I spent a few years in community mental health and then I was working in a group practice and I had a client come in that didn't come in, you know, saying I have religious trauma or I'm from a high control religion or anything like that. Um, And we're like working on the things that they came in for and these themes kept coming up um, and they kept being related to religion and beliefs and those kinds of things. And so I just kind of brought up the subject of like, you know, I'm noticing that these things keep coming up and they all seem to be tied to your religious beliefs. What do you think about that? Um, And that person just experienced like a really big sense of relief of like, Mm. oh, you're recognizing these patterns too. Like I was kind of starting to recognize them, but it felt scary to say anything. Mm. Um, So then that person referred someone else to me. Um, and so people just, the word kind of got out. Um, Mm -hmm. and especially because a lot of folks in this area, it has been evangelical fundamentalist Christianity that they have, um, dealt with and that they have experienced high control. And so a lot of the vocabulary and things or the experiences, there's just relief when they talk about Mm -hmm. them with somebody that like, I don't have to explain this vocabulary. Or you don't look at me like I'm crazy when I tell you that this happened um, because you can understand how this happened in those dynamics. Yes. Um, and so I then I realized I actually really am at a point where I enjoy working with these clients. Like it's not, mm-hmm. I am at a point in my healing where it's not triggering for me. Um, and so then I started intentionally kind of focusing more that way. Um, and taking more trainings specifically around religious trauma, doing whatever reading and, um, to understand things more. Um, and so that's kind of how I, I landed here. Yeah. Are there any, as you think back to that time when you were doing a lot of this learning, which I imagine is ongoing, but were there any like books or resources or you know, places where you got learning from in that initial stage that were especially helpful? Yeah, I think for me, some of the learning was like my own healing. And so seeking out books that I'm a big reader, so books that resonated with me at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as there started to be more podcasts of like folks sharing their own stories, especially, um, or other people talking about you know, things within high control religion that it's like, okay, I'm not the only one that experienced that, Mm. Um, that those were a part of it when I wasn't even trying to, you know, on a path of trying to learn um, to be able to support other people. Um, Mm. I have, I've done some trainings. Um, I did one um, with Religious Trauma Institute. Um, They offer, they offer a few different things, both for folks that are um, on a healing journey and folks that are doing clinical work, um, but their training was helpful. I've done mm-hmm. a few others um, around um, just recognizing and supporting folks um, in different areas of, of their healing. And um, I'm actually hoping to be able to offer some of my own trainings mm-hmm. um, in 2024. So I feel like this <sighs> is so important. And yes, um, yes. Yeah. And I think your area of specialty, which we'll get into a little bit more, is feels to me like a really 
underexplored kind of niche within this niche Mm -hmm. and that is the relationship between high control religion diet culture and body image purity culture all of that um and before we get there to hear a little bit more about that I'm curious if you're comfortable sharing a little bit about what your relationship to religion or spirituality is now knowing that sometimes as therapists we we don't always share so it's totally up to you how much if any um, you're comfortable sharing. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of have an answer to that, that I'm comfortable giving. So okay. yeah. Love it. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so for me, I would say that spirituality is very complicated right now. Um, and I've recognized that can change at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this hope that there is something bigger than us out there. Um, I know that it is not the male version of God that I was taught um, all throughout, you know, youth, young adulthood, um, but I don't know what it is. Um, Mm. And so that's just, that's kind of where I am right now of this hopefulness, but not knowing. Yes. Yes. And I think that is such a, a common theme I notice in myself and in others who are in similar places as you and I is that like being a little more comfortable with the uncertainty or the not Mm. needing to have all the answers like is in and of itself in some ways a spiritual practice. Yeah. And sometimes Mm. that can be so freeing of like, Mm -hmm. I don't have to figure this out. It's okay to exist in the gray. And sometimes it's really uncomfortable. Like I would like a clear cut answer. Yes. How is it to live in geographically in a place that is still very rooted in evangelicalism? Like, because I'm thinking of me in the Northeast when I sort of left high control religion. Um, It was very easy. It took work, but it's not hard to find places that have been kind of untouched by evangelicalism in some ways. And I imagine that's a little bit harder in the South where religion and culture a little bit more intertwined mm-hmm. yeah it it definitely can be hard um there's a an overall assumption I think from a lot of people that everybody is Christian um and so you might be at an event that like is not in a church was not promoted as a Christian event like there was there's no indication there should be anything religious about it. And all of a sudden somebody's like, well, now we're going to pray. Mm. And there's just this feeling of like, what, what are we doing? Like, mm. um, so I think that can be part of it. Um, navigating family can be really hard. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine this is partially geographical, but also partially just who your family is. Um, you know, cause you definitely could live anywhere else and also have family members that are very, very committed to a high control religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's an extra layer maybe to it in, in the South, in the Bible belt, because you'll have some family members who are very committed and you can somewhat understand why they are distraught. If, if from their perspective, you've chosen to walk away from this thing that's so important. But then you also might have the family members that like 
have never talked about church, maybe never even really gone to church, but all of a sudden are upset with you because you're actively not going to church. Mm. Um, and so navigating that can be hard just because there's this like cultural Christianity piece. Right. Um, I do find I'm in central North Carolina. And so um, there are a lot of folks who live here who are not natives of the South. Um, and so there are definitely some pockets of things in my area um, that it's not felt as much because it has more of the culture of wherever folks came from that wasn't as steeped mm. in cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there definitely are some places where you can connect with folks in a different kind of spiritual realm um, or spirituality, not part of it at all. But mm. um, you also rub up against it. I mean, there's people that have signs in their yard of like, you know, praise Jesus or we love mm-hmm. Jesus or, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Yes. And, and we definitely have that in Massachusetts too, but it sticks out a little bit more. I, I think it's a little bit less common. Mm-hmm. It's, um, so one last question before we dive into diet culture and body image. <laughs> Where have you found community now post ministry or post like that specific ministry? Because certainly I I don't want to ever send the message on this podcast that re- leaving high control religion has to mean leaving religion altogether. So certainly community can still be found in religion, but what are some ways that you have found community after leaving high control religion? That is a really hard thing. Yeah. Um, and so I do feel like at this point I'm in a good place um, of community. And I just want to acknowledge and honor that it took a long time to get there. Yeah. Um, two of the places that immediately come to mind are um, there is a small group of therapists who we all have experienced religious trauma um, and we all work with folks that have experienced religious trauma or are exiting high control religions. Um, And one of the therapists just kind of reached out um, on a Facebook group about a year and a half ago and was like, I'm feeling really isolated in this work. Would anybody like to have maybe a consultation type group? Um, And lots and lots of people said they were interested and there were like five of us that showed up for the online group that first week um and it morphed into more of a friendship and like Mm. real community for each other and um being able to understand so many aspects of each other's lives um you know being survivors of religious trauma and having experienced that high control religion um and also working in mental health and working with folks who have had their own experiences in high control religion. Mm. Um, So that's one place that I have found community. And then another um, is that a few folks in my neighborhood, we just started going to this local brewery that has trivia every Monday. Um, And so uh, I feel like that we've really been able to build community around that of just, you know, folks that we may not have normally run across each other, for any other reason, but it was like, Hey, they're, they're trying out trivia. You want to go see what it's like? So, um, and there's various Mm. age folks in that group too. So that is a a neat Mm. thing to have some community. That's not all like 
right at the same age. Yes, I think that is, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. That is one of the things that I grieve and miss from being in church is that intergenerational mm-hmm. piece. Um, I think church, like, can, and obviously is not the only place, but provides that, like, setting where people from, of all ages can exist together. And there's mm-hmm. not as many other spaces like that. So I'm so pleased to hear that you found a space like that for yourself. I agree with mm-hmm. you. Like a lot of times church is one of the main places where you can interact with folks that are not your age or exactly where you are in life. And mm-hmm. I think that's important. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to switch gears and kind of dive into your work a little bit more. Um, just to sort of set the stage, how in terms of your work or your experience, how do you define diet culture and purity culture? What's your understanding of them? They don't have to be like the official definitions. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be hard to find like one official definition yes. for either one. <laughs> yeah. um, for me, I would say diet culture is like the myths and the promises around food and weight and body size and health um, that we hear all the time in media, um, you know, social media, it's, it's all around us. Um, and there's generally a focus on the idea that thin bodies are quote unquote better or healthier or more worthwhile. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about diet culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with purity culture, Um, I've heard it described as like a subculture of evangelical Christianity. I think that it exists, oh, I've experienced that it exists in a lot more types of religion than just Mm -hmm. evangelical Christianity. Um, It may not be called purity culture, but um, the ideas of like some of the things that are part of purity culture are teaching really strict gender roles um, with a binary view of gender. Um, that, you know, there is male and female, and this is what each of those do and what each of those are not allowed to do. Um, there is a focus on modesty, particularly on, um, women covering their bodies and then abstinence of any type of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I I think, right. This is such a huge concept. I think you encapsulated my understanding of both of those things really well. And I'm curious how you notice those diet culture and purity culture relate to one another Mm -hmm. or perhaps influence. Like, what is the relationship there that you've observed? Yeah. So at first, I didn't necessarily recognize how much they relate to each other as much as I noticed parallels mm. of they both diet culture and purity culture create this judgmental hierarchy, um, judging yourself and other people, whether it's judging the size of somebody's body or their health based on appearance um, or judging, you know, that outfit is modest enough or that behavior is pure enough. Um, that there can be like this constant, like, I'm quote unquote better than them, or I'm quote unquote doing worse than them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one parallel behavior. 
Um, both diet culture and purity culture disconnect us from our bodies because yes. they come with tons of outside rules and regulations um, and no room for just existing in the body that you have mm-hmm. and being aware of what your body might need or won't mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. at a particular time. Mm-hmm. Um, really cutting off your intuition. Yes. Um, both use a lot of morals based language. Like um, I think it maybe is more clear with purity culture and talking about people being pure or clean or virginal versus somebody being like sinful or being a slut or being trashy. Um, but it also exists in diet culture with ideas of like, you know, quote, clean eating mm-hmm. or the ideas of like good food versus junk food and like mm-hmm. placing this morality um, on what we what we eat or health Mm -hmm. behaviors. Um, Mm. And so that's the first thing I noticed was those parallels and then recognizing like, wow, these intersect a lot. Like Mm. these diet culture and purity culture create this distrust and disconnection of your body and your intuition and like knowing what you need or won't. Mm. Um, And so then you struggle to like recognize like what is what is painful what is pleasurable what is satisfaction um and to acknowledge your needs without feeling like they're bad or sinful or whatever words that you might put on it um so that's kind of how the process happened for me of noticing like wow there's a lot of intersection intersection over mm-hmm. these two things mm. Yeah. And I I don't know if this was common in your upbringing. It actually wasn't in mine, but I've heard stories from uh, friends who grew up Mormon or other people who grew up just in different churches than I did, but a real emphasis on um, like looking a certain way in order to attract a a husband. Like usually the focus is on women, Mm -hmm. at at least in my experience. Um, Like I know in in certain sex, they'll really encourage women to like lose weight in order to attract a mate, because of course, that's what women's purpose is in life. And that's one of the intersections that I notice. I don't know if, if again, that wasn't my experience, actually, but I don't know if you see that in your in your work at all. I've seen that some in my work. Um, and there's a, a few ways that that was kind of sprinkled in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you are if any listeners remember the way down workshop. Um, oh, no, I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> um, and this lady named Gwen Shamblin, there's actually a documentary um, about that whole experience, but she really mixed diet culture and like high control religion together. Um, and it was this whole um, kind of weight loss program, but it was built around you know, serving God and that your body is a temple and Mm -hmm. um, looking a certain way. um, And of course, no like medical research behind it. No uh, recognition of the fact that we have different genetics and some bodies are just not going to look certain ways, you know? Um, And so that is probably maybe the early nineties, mid nineties. 
when that was a big thing. I think it was bigger in some other churches than it was in my experience, but it definitely was a part of my experience. Like, mm. okay, now we're doing aerobics classes in the church fellowship hall. Um, mm. And people are checking in on how much weight did you lose this week? Mm. Um, wow. So that is one place I can think of it kind mm. of sprinkling in. Another that came to mind um, is uh, hearing of a pastor telling um, a woman in the church that if she hadn't gained weight, that her husband would not be cheating on her. Um, and of course, obviously, there's a lot more to the story than that. But just the fact that someone who's in leadership, that this woman is going to for support and is grieving what's happening in her marriage and being told, you know, if your body had stayed exactly the same as it was 20 years ago when you got married, which is not realistic, then this wouldn't be happening. Mm. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking. It is. Um, and I know Emily Joy Allison, who wrote the book Church 2, hashtag Church 2, mm -hmm. which is, you know, following the Me Too movement, writes a lot about how, and I like, I can see where this story you just told, like, leads into not just diet culture and purity culture, but some really problematic, um, kind of like affirming of sexual assault. It, like, it could go down that road mm -hmm. in that story. And, and yeah, a lot of these... The purity culture, high control religions really create an environment that makes people very vulnerable to that type of abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I have heard described in, in multiple places that kind of this pipeline from high control religion into domestic violence situations, mm. um, abusive uh, mm -hmm. relationships, relationships where sexual assault is present because mm -hmm. of what you have been taught and not taught um, mm. about sex. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There's so little information given in many of these high control religions about anatomy, mm -hmm. much less consent. Yes. You know, yeah. yeah. There's kind of this whole idea of don't have sex. Sex is this wonderful thing, but you can't have it because you're not married. And we're not going to tell you anything about how the mechanics work or what emotions are involved or like you just, it's off limits for you. And yeah. then all of a sudden you get married and you're supposed to know what to do. And it's going to be this wonderful experience. And a lot of women are taught that you're supposed to be available whenever your husband wants sex. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. your, your desire or how your body is feeling does not matter that your role mm. is to be available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a part of those complementarian roles, like mm -hmm. complementarianism, which is, as I understand it, the idea, like, as you said before, that I, I think they, in, in my upbringing, they would say men and women are created equal, just have different roles. Mm -hmm. Right. And following that logic, this is one of those roles that women are freely available to offer their husband sex whenever he so chooses. Yes. Yeah. And it sounds like it sounds really good on the surface when you say men and women are different, but they have different right. roles. Right. And then when you start following down, it's like, but all of the men's roles are like 
the leadership roles. They get to mm-hmm. make the decisions. Like mm-hmm. they get to have some control over their own life. And all mm-hmm. of the women's roles are being submissive and not taking on any leadership and mm-hmm. just kind of doing what the men, especially their husband, in their lives tell them. Like, yeah. hmm. kind of seems like a man created this system. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it seems Very like it's, so. it's working out for them. I've, I've been seeing some research floating around Instagram that's not even specifically in, in a religious context. And, and I need to do more investigating of this research, but that it's showing that women who are single versus women who are married, women who are single are happier long term and men who are married are happier long term. Mm-hmm. Which I've seen like some of that. Yeah. Seems to if that's true, again, I haven't, you know, done a full analysis, but kind of follows that lines because yeah, marriage in a religious or in a lot of times cultural context were not designed to, for the benefit of women. Mm-hmm. And I think when you grow up in that kind of culture, there's so many things that are set up as normal. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily fault the folks that are, that are in, especially yes. the folks that are just part of it, not yes. part of the leadership and like perpetuating it. Because whatever we know, we think is normal. Yeah. Um, but I, yes. I remember, you know, being around some of my friends who were married when I was very, very much in a complementarian church. And they would, you know, if we wanted to go get like frozen yogurt or something, well, I need to ask my husband if I can spend that money. Mm. And it just kind of felt like a child asking a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Rather than I'm a full grown adult and I have access to finances, um, you know, so I think there's, I mean, in in a lot of those cases, women might not even have access to finances because I know there are some um, branches of fundamentalism, different religions that like encourage women not to pursue career education, which really in in a society like ours makes you pretty powerless Mm -hmm. and and dependent on whoever it is that's taking care of you. Yeah. Yeah. So even if you realize problems within the structure, there, there really is a feeling of like, but what else can I do? I don't know how to leave. Yes. Yes. And that that's so similar to domestic violence, Mm -hmm. right? Is that a lot of people don't leave those relationships because they don't have the resources to. Yeah. Yeah. So coming back to body image, I'm curious what, what you notice as a relationship between high control religion and and negative body image or, or I guess body image in general. Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of things that we talked about, um, you know, just, just because someone's in high control religion doesn't cut them off from the culture at large. Most of the mm-hmm. time, there are some situations where, where it mm-hmm. does, but for a lot of folks, they're still getting all the messages from, you know, the media, um, from television, um, weight loss ads, like they're getting all the messages that your body should be a certain way. And they're also getting messages from, their high control religion 
particularly if those teachings around purity culture are a part of it, that your body should be a certain way. You should clothe it a certain way. You should carry yourself a certain way. Um, and it really can create this environment where you are just constantly focusing on, am I okay? Is my body okay? Am I showing too much? Am I um, not looking the way that I should? Have I gained a few pounds? But then you're also being taught that that is selfish and prideful to be thinking mm. about your body that much. Mm-hmm. So then you're battling, well, am I sinful? Like, you know, there's there yes. can just be so many battles that are going on um, right. around that. And so I think it adds an extra layer to body image struggles. Um, mm. You know, lots of folks in the U.S. have body image struggles just because we are swimming in diet culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but you add that mm-hmm. high control religion piece and it adds even another layer to the body image mm-hmm. struggles that a person can have. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, the goalpost is always moving like culturally, never mind religion. And mm-hmm. then you add another, the layer of religion. Um, yeah. I know within my own family, I've heard a lot of, you know, talk about gluttony as a sin. Right. And so therefore, if you develop some sort of illness, like type two diabetes, for example, um, that that's seen as a result of your sin. Mm-hmm. And so how are you supposed to look at your body if you now think of it as inherently sinful for having yes. these needs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that also speaks to like the need for rest. Mm. That in a lot of high control religions, mm. that is not recognized or honored either. And that's another need that our body has that it communicates to us that we're told to cut off. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and I think all of that can build up and really affect our body image. Mm. Um, even though you might not initially think of resting as having anything to do with body image. Mm. But mm. I think they, it can build up and and all be connected. Yeah. Yeah. And, and rest in some ways, I wonder if it is so difficult in, in terms of body image, because you if you're resting, you're not busy, you're not mm-hmm. active. You maybe have to sit with, OK, this is the body I have in resting. I'm not trying to change it. It just is. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean. That's so hard because the a really big message behind diet culture is that you should always be striving to change your body, to make your body smaller, um, mm-hmm. you know, and big messages in a lot of high control religion is, is striving. You know, mm-hmm. it may, it may be striving in different directions, but a lot of emphasis on, you know, striving, giving it all to God. Um, you know, that you shouldn't yeah. kind of that idea of like idle hands or the devil's playground. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I forget who I was talking to recently, but we were reflecting on how um, maybe it was for another podcast. But anyway, reflecting on how boredom is a feeling that we've sort of lost touch with. And like that idea, idle hands full. Idle hands could just be boredom. And actually from boredom comes a lot of creativity, uh-huh. potentially in play. And 
it's important to be idle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is such a great example. So you think mm. about the things that kids come up with when they're allowed to be bored. Yes, yes. Mm. Um, I Before we get to like wrapping up, I, I want to hear a little bit more about your work as an educator, because you... In your bio that I read, you know, you mentioned that you are trying to educate faith leaders about mental health. What does that look like? Yeah, so I would have never thought that would be something I would doing, be doing. <laughs> um, and in the past two to three years, I've come across some um, folks that are just in different um, leadership positions. In most of them are in churches, like progressive churches, and they recognize there is stuff going on with the mental health of the folks that I lead and I didn't get any training to deal with mental health. Mm. Um, or they recognize that there are folks within my congregation or group that have experienced religious trauma and they want to practice their religion mm. and their faith in a different way. And I want to not, or to do everything that I can to not contribute to more trauma. Um, mm. And so you know, they would just ask me questions and things and having these conversations. Um, and out of that grew um, a seminar that I did for the first time last year um, for faith leaders. And it, it, it was open to anybody in any kind of leadership position, paid, volunteer, whatever. Mm -hmm. If you are in a position where you're doing some type of leadership, then you're welcome to come. Um, and talking about mental health and things you can look for. Um, things that you might see, um, how you can handle when folks come to talk to you because you're the person that they trust, um, being aware of resources that are out there, if whatever is going on is beyond what you feel like you can adequately help with or support with. Um, and it was a really great experience. It was a great conversation. Um, and so I'm planning on offering it again this year. This year I'm going to do it um, as an online webinar. So it's not tied to one geographical location. Um, mm. And I'm going to include a little bit more about basic mental health um, based on the feedback of the folks that attended last year. Uh, but I was really encouraged, A, to see these folks that are in leadership positions, um, in faith-based spaces, and were aware and wanted to learn more um, about mm -hmm. understanding what's going on with mental health, understanding how to create spaces that, you know, are trauma aware, um, are sensitive to what might be going on with some of the folks there. Mm -hmm. um, and then be just the conversation that, that arose from that day, um, you know, and being able to ask questions. Um, I guess I hadn't really thought about how, uh, little training around mental health. A lot of, mm. of folks have, um, even if they went to seminary or divinity school or something, um, and how much of a passion they have to understand it more, mm. at least for some of them. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited mm. to be able to offer that again this year. Mm. Makes me really hopeful that there are faith leaders out there who want to learn mm -hmm. and grow. Yeah. Me as well. And I feel like I'm in a unique position to kind of speak to both sides because mm. I do have that experience serving in ministry and like that being my vocation. And yeah. I also 
I'm trained and am in the mental health world as a licensed counselor, so I can provide that perspective and resources as well. Mm, yeah. Is there something that you wish faith leaders specifically understood about purity culture or diet culture or body image? Mm. I wish that faith leaders understood how their words can impact the people Mm -hmm. um, that they're leading. Mm -hmm. And so messages, you know, statements such as, here's my smoking hot wife, Um, you know, that maybe not directly teaching diet culture, but like that's feeding into diet culture. Here is the woman I'm married to and her value is in her appearance. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, teaching, teachings around diet, uh, around purity culture and around the really strict gender norms, like Mm -hmm. recognizing how those can impact people um, and can really limit people in being their full selves. Mm. Um, So I think. I think that would be kind of just overall an awareness of my words have power simply because of the position that I'm in and I need to use that power wisely. Mm. Yes. Not so different from how we as therapists are really ideally examining, you know, how we speak Mm -hmm. to our clients about our clients. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With all of this work that you do and all that you've been through, what does taking care of yourself look like at this point in your life? Yeah. Um, For me, one big thing in the past few years, really since 2020, um, is paying attention and honoring my own rhythms. Um, Mm. I am a person who would much rather work at 8 p.m. than 8 a.m. And recognizing, and I realize not everybody has the flexibility to be able to do that. Being in private practice, I do have the flexibility to set up my schedule. And so recognizing that um, and that it's okay. Like, you know, you don't have to be awake at 530 to to be productive or worthwhile. Um, So that's that has been a big one um, for me. Um, Mm. Paying attention to what my body needs, whether that is that it's hungry or thirsty or it wants to move around, um, really trying. And I feel like that's a constant journey of to tune into that and not be like, okay, but just this one more thing. Like, mm. no, like your body is telling you it needs this. Listen. Yeah. Um, like that is a, a big one. And then the other thing that I think about is, and I, I struggle with this one. I, this one I'm really still working on is reminding myself that a bad day doesn't mean a bad life. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, if I have a day where it's like nothing went right, or if I made some mistake or, you know, that that doesn't mean that everything is ruined forever. Mm -hmm. Um, That it really can be, okay, this was not the day that I would have wanted it to be. And tomorrow is a new day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, 
I am going to end with, so this season of the podcast is a lot of heavy topics. You know, we've done a lot of heavy (laughs) topics today. And so I, in the spirit of um, Brene Brown's podcast, when it first came out, I remember just loving at the end, she did rapid fire questions. Uh So I'm going to ask you 10 random questions and we're not going to like explore them. I'm not going to put my therapist hat on and ask you all the que- <laughs> all the things about them, but just first thing that pops to your mind. Um, all right. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. What song would be the background music for your life today? I don't know if this would be the background music, but the first song that popped into my head was, um, I don't know if this is the real name of it, but the, like, my little boo thing song that's, like, on Instagram. That was the first song that popped (laughs) into my head. Love it. (laughs) What is the weirdest food combination that you enjoy Hmm. or that other people might think is weird? I like French fries and mayonnaise. I'm not a big ketchup Mm. fan. Um, but I like French fries with mayonnaise. Yes. All right. I don't know if you have any tattoos, but if you had to get one today, what would you get? I know this. I do have a couple of tattoos. One of the ones that I have is, um, the kanji symbol for faith. And I would like Mm. to get it covered up with like, uh, some kind of flowers or something like that to represent growth. That's a hard one for me not to like ask more questions about. <laughs> um, when was the last time you laughed so hard that you cried? It was probably some corny joke that my partner told. Um, he will like randomly tell, say something really clever, but also really corny. And sometimes it just hits me just right. And I just lose it. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Um, what is one item on your bucket list? I want to visit all 50 states. Ooh. Yes. Please come visit us up here in New England. <laughs> I would like to, a bunch of the states that I haven't hit yet are New England. All so. right. Well, anytime you're here. <laughs> um, what is one thing you're reading or watching right now? I am reading Britney Spears' memoir right now. What is something that strangers often incorrectly assume about you? This one is interesting um, because I think there's two assumptions and they kind of sound opposite. Some folks assume that I'm very like standoffish um, and some folks assume that I'm very extroverted. And I think it just Mm. depends on what context they first meet me in. Mm. Neither Mm. of those are true. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, we're living in the gray here, living in the middle. (laughs) Um, what emoji do you use the most? Probably the winky face. <laughs> what is your favorite scent? The ocean air. Like when you first mm. arrive toward the beach and you can like smell the salt on the air. Yes. Yes. I am so lucky where I live. Sometimes if the wind is hitting just right, I can smell it at my house. Oh. Amazing. Um. All right, last question. What is your favorite place on the planet? There is this very specific pier. It's a very small pier that is on the Intracoastal Waterway um, in Southern North Carolina. Um, And you can see beautiful sunsets there, and it's just really peaceful. 
that is my my favorite place on the planet. Lovely. Oh. Michelle, if people want to follow your work, maybe keep an eye out for those educational opportunities you have coming up, where can people find you? Um, so I do have a website. It is my name. So it's michellefmosley.com. So that's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-F-M-O-S-E-L-E-Y.com. That's got all of the information about me, about upcoming um, seminars, um, all kinds of things that I'm offering. Um, and I'm also pretty active on Instagram and my handle over there is therapy underscore with underscore Michelle. Amazing. I will tag those links in the show notes of today's episode. Thank you so much for being here. I have learned so much and it's been really great to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. Um, why am I? Oh, I'm like, this has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod. And you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy or my website, CarrieFillion.com. I am committed to keeping the show ad free and accessible to everyone. So if you would like to make a donation to support the work of your friend, the therapist, you can find a link to my PayPal in the show notes. You can also support the show by listening and subscribing on Substack, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. If this show has been helpful for you, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Your support means the world. Until next time, take care and stay well.